I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello and welcome to Vet Sessions. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland and I'm your host today. And I'm so excited to interview OVC's own Dr. Aaron Phillips. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So today we're going to talk about proteinuria, which I know is your favorite topic. <laughs> but uh, before we jump into that, would you mind telling us just a little bit about kind of your career path to become an internal medicine specialist? For sure. Um, so I did my uh, undergrad degree at uh, University of Guelph in animal biology, and then I went to vet school at OVC, and I actually graduated in 2014, so a little while ago, and then I did some work in general small animal practice and then decided I wanted to come back and specialize in internal medicine. So in 2019, I came and did my small animal rotating internship at OVC, and then was able to get into a residency awesome. uh, at OVC as well. So just OVC for life for, for sure. Um, and and yeah, it was right in the middle of COVID, but uh, everything went well and just just finished my um, uh, my residency in August. Fantastic. I think you've written your exam as well. I did. Passed, passed it Fantastic. all. Fantastic. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> Yay. Well, we're so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. That's incredible. Um, okay. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And so now let's jump into our topic. So we have lots of questions about proteinuria. <laughs> it's a complex topic for sure. Um, and I'm really happy that we're discussing it today because it's really interesting and also can be confusing. So, mm -hmm. so let's start off with the basics. So what is proteinuria? Yeah. So in basic terms, we would say proteinuria is an increased loss of protein through the glomerulus into the urine. And the glomerulus is a part of the kidney, as we know. So just to give a little overview of how the glomerulus works, I think this helps you understand how proteinuria occurs. The glomerulus um, basically takes small portions of, of blood um, that are delivered to it through the afferent arterial, which is basically the blood vessel going into the glomerulus. And then it acts like this fine mesh strainer. So it's only supposed to let little things pass through um, into the urine. So things like glucose or, or water, and that part's going to become your urine. Now, normally protein that's in the blood, and which we typically mean albumin when we talk about protein, it's too big to fit through this mesh filter. So you won't see a lot of it in the urine. But when you have damage to your glomerulus, it creates holes in the little mesh filter that then makes bigger things able to get through. So now albumin can actually go and pass through into the urine. And we quantify the amount of albumin in the urine as the urine protein creatinine ratio, or UPCR. And we say a UPCR greater than 0.5 in dogs is considered to be an increased loss of protein in the urine. So that would be proteinuria in a dog is a UPCR greater than 0.5. And then in cats, it's a little bit less a UPCR greater than 0.5 four is considered to be proteinuria. Okay, so basically there's damage to that sort of sieve structure within the kidney that allows larger proteins to leak into the urine and that's how you get the protein. You got okay. it. Okay, amazing, amazing, thank you. So tell me, why are there so many different names for proteinuria? It seems like there are multiple and I never know, um, I get lots of questions about whether it's the same thing or not. 
Yeah, I think it can be difficult for students or even vets to understand why there's so many names for proteinuria because sometimes people will just say proteinuria for any increased amount of protein in urine, but sometimes they classify it as protein losing nephropathy or PLN, or sometimes they call it glomerular nephritis. So I think of it as proteinuria being the catch-all term for when a patient has an increase, UPCR, as we said. Okay. But it really doesn't give you a good idea of the severity of the proteinuria or even the underlying cause. So you can have a mild amount of proteinuria that may not be indicative of true glomerular disease. So there's actually a concept of we call it tubular proteinuria, which is where the renal tubulars aren't, you know, tubules aren't working as well. And you can get a small amount of proteinuria from that. And that might even be what you'd see in like chronic kidney disease. Okay. Versus protein-losing nephropathy is typically reserved for patients that have a lot of protein loss in their urine. So we would even say, like a general idea is a UPCR greater than two. Now you're saying, okay, that's probably not just general proteinuria. I can go ahead and say, this is true glomerular cause of proteinuria. Okay. So at this degree, you're more likely dealing with, you know, now like that animal may have low uh, albumin levels or higher, you know, kidney values, and you're really going to want to be, you know, trying to intervene. Um, Now, protein losing nephropathy, I still kind of reserve that for patients who maybe are clinically otherwise healthy. Maybe you've picked up this condition just incidentally and in your screening, um, and it's a more slowly progressing disease. Whereas patients that have a high, you know a high protein level in their urine but are also maybe clinically ill, it's it's very active. That's when I would term that as glomerular nephritis, so indicating active inflammation in the kidney itself. So for yourself, you know, either you're becoming a veterinarian or you are a veterinarian, I would say rather than just classing every classifying every patient with a UPCR greater than 0.5 as saying okay that has proteinuria, try to take it a step further to say actually I'm going to classify them as having PLN or glomerular nephritis because when you look back you can say okay what are we talking about just a little bit of proteinuria here a lot of proteinuria you know what's the underlying condition so that's why sometimes people call them different things they really are all still proteinuria but you know just taking it a step further of classification okay that makes a lot of sense and yeah I like the idea of kind of trying to label it um, in terms of what you're looking for that makes it a lot clearer because you're right proteinuria is such a huge catch-all term (laughs) So then what is the problem with leaving proteinuria undiagnosed or or untreated? I know that sometimes owners have the reaction of, okay, so my dog has protein in the urine, so what? You know, um, what what is the, the problem with that? Yeah, exactly. And I I think that helps you as well um, as a veterinarian kind of give you that push to explain to the owner why we should be treating it and also even what would motivate you to try to look for it and start treating it. So I kind of think of four main systemic consequences of proteinuria. So the first one is going to be damage to your kidney. So albumin is not supposed to be normally found in the urine in large quantities. And the renal tubular cells, when they see that albumin in the urine, they're actually going to try to reabsorb it. But they're not supposed to be trying to reabsorb it. It actually will damage the renal tubules if they're trying to reabsorb albumin. So once you start getting damage to their tubular cells, then you're going to lead to renal disease. So that's why one of the, the complicating factors is untreating you know, not treating proteinuria in the long term can lead to renal damage. So that's why you want to kind of get ahead of it. Because as we know, once you have kidney disease, especially chronic kidney disease, there aren't as as many things you can do. 
Um, for uh, one of the other things is having low albumin in your blood. I think that's the one that people really think of. So when you lose a large amount of albumin in your urine, then your blood albumin levels will drop. Right. So you can yeah get things like muscle wasting, and it's if it's severe enough, can have that low blood oncotic pressure. So then you're going to get like ascites, edema, things like that. Um, now, interestingly, I do find that protein urea needs to be relatively significant to actually cause hypoalbuminemia. So if you have a UPCR of like one or one point five, and your patient has a low blood albumin level, I'd be probably looking for additional causes of hypoalbuminemia rather than just saying, oh, this is only due to proteinuria. So we usually are getting those like, I would say a UPCR at least above like two or three before you can say, you know, say I'm feeling pretty confident that low albumin is due to proteinuria alone. Okay. Um, the third aspect is hypertension. So patients with proteinuria and renal disease often, ha often have an upregulated, we call it the ren renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, which results in glomerular and peripheral hypertension. So hypertension can also even cause proteinuria and kind of thinking of that consequence is why I always remind myself it's important to take a blood pressure on any patient that you diagnose with proteinuria just because they can go together. And finally, um, one of, I think, the biggest things is hypercoagulability. So it isn't always on everyone's radar, but it is an important consequence of proteinuria. So dogs with proteinuria have been found to be hypercoagulable, so meaning at increased risk of blood clots. And why are those, you know, dogs at increased risk of blood clots? We don't exactly know why, but some of the ideas are if you have loss of something called antithrombin, so it's like an anticoagulant into your urine, um, your platelets are more reactive or um, it, it inhibits clot breakdown in the body. And actually there was a, a study in dogs that had aortic thrombi and they found that protein leucine nephropathy or proteinuria was most the one of the most commonly identified underlying conditions so it okay. yeah it really seems like increased risk of blood clots and proteinuria you should be putting those together in your mind for dogs okay okay so this is really important to diagnose and treat effectively okay thank mm -hmm. you so let's get down to sort of a little bit of the root causes of it what causes proteinuria big question. Yeah, man, that is a <laughs> that is a big question and I and I guess I want to try to simplify it a little bit more Great. um because there can be many many causes which unfortunately makes diagnosing the underlying cause very hard to do. Yeah. Um but when we talk about I guess true PLN or that glomerular source of proteinuria, I usually think of three main structural causes to consider. Okay. So one of the big ones is like an immune mediated attack or this like uh, deposition of immune complexes in the glomerulus itself. So kind of like an underlying immune cause. And then the other two are amyloidosis. So kind of like amyloid deposited in the kidney. And then finally we call it glomerulus sclerosis, which is basically like scar tissue forming in the glomerulus. And it, you know, it's funny because talking about an immune mediated cause of glomerular disease, I think, you know, students or even vets don't always think of that, but actually they did a study on a bunch of dogs that had glomerular nephritis and actually immune mediated disease was the underlying cause in about 50% of the cases. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. So just, just something to keep in mind. Um, now, when we talk about immune mediated causes, it's the same as immune mediated diseases and other factors like IMHA or things like that. You can have a primary cause, which is kind of occurring primarily on its own, or a secondary cause. And usually those secondary causes are things like tick-borne disease or, you know, chronic inflammation of things like that. Okay. 
Now, in terms of other causes, I usually will say um, endocrine diseases, so um, Cushing's disease or diabetes can be associated with proteinuria. Um, and then a ton of other causes of proteinuria that are not necessarily due to, I guess, glomerular disease. So if we have increased protein in our urine, sometimes it could be because we have a lot of blood in the urine, um, a lot of bacteria or white blood cells. Also, if you have like a UTI or, or a pyelonephritis, like a kidney infection, um, if you have like cancer in the body, it can cause proteinuria. Or even if you just did like strenuous exercise or your patient just had a seizure, you know, before you collect your urine sample, those can all cause proteinuria. I guess it's just, you know, is it persistent or, or the severity um, that we're looking for? Okay, that makes sense. Okay, perfect. So what if we have a case where it's a patient who has a urine protein creatinine ratio of greater than 0.5? So this is where, um, so the urine protein creatinine ratio is where we're going to actually quantify the protein, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so if it is zero, greater than 0 0.5, can I say that they have proteinuria? Yeah, it, you know, that's an interesting question. I would say yes and no. You know, one of the things I would hesitate vet students or, or vets of getting a one-off, you know, urine sample that you've collected, you did it, you know, you decided to run a UPCR and it was increased about 0.5 and you say, okay, this animal has proteinuria, I'm going to start treatment, you know, no question of that diagnosis. Um, there, there actually are kind of guidelines to say if you want to truly diagnose proteinuria, you really don't want to do, do it based on a one-off elevated UPCR. Ideally, you want to see that UPCR greater than 0.5 on three occasions, and we say greater than equal to, to two weeks apart. Um, and you want to see that the urine that you're you're looking at this protein level on is got a pretty quiet sediment. So, you know, as we said, things like elevated white blood cells, red blood cells, bacteria can all, you know, falsely potentially increase the protein levels in your urine. Um, so would you know say to the owner maybe if you've diagnosed this as a one-off say you know i really want to make sure that this is persistent you know that we really are going to go ahead with treatment for this um and to say okay we'll we'll treat you know check again in two weeks you know what i mean get another right. sample right okay yeah now i will say this recommendation is a bit more for kind of milder proteinuria i guess for upcr greater than two you know the animal is clinically stable you know we're not seeing really rapidly progressive disease if you have severe proteinuria and this dog, you know, or cat really has a lot of indications that it needs to get treatment right away, like the kidney values are increased, the, the protein is dropping, then it, they do say it's fair to say based on one urine sample, if everything's piecing together, all right, we're not going to delay treatment by checking in a couple of weeks. We feel confident enough to start to start treatment now. So I think a little bit of depends on how confident you are that this is, you know, a, a true, you know, ele elevated UPCR and that you don't want to wait to start to start treatment. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Now we've been throwing around the term UPCR a lot. So maybe is that okay if we kind of define it a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so I think the, the, traditional way sometimes we'll look at proteinuria is when we do a urine dipstick and we see that it has that positive for protein, right. um, you know, one plus two plus three plus, but we really can't quantify, you know, numerically how much that translates to, you know, three plus can be kind of any, any degree or severity of proteinuria. So we look to the UPCR to give us more of like a numerical result. So that's why when I say a UPCR greater than 0.5, that's giving me that number. I wouldn't just be able to feel confident on a urine dipstick of how much that is. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit more about what is the best way to evaluate for proteinuria then? 
Yeah. So when I was in practice, I remember being very strict with how I collected my urine to assess for proteinuria. I remember it was recommended at that time. You only wanted to check your UPCR on a urine sample taken by cystocentesis because you really wanted that sample to be very clean and you didn't want any degree of mm-hmm. active urine sediment. Mm-hmm. So I remember I would, you know, do my cysto urine. I'd probably get a bit of blood contamination because I've hit a vessel in the bladder. I'd have a little bit of hematuria. I'd say, oh, well, I can't even, you know, I can't even use these results now it's probably falsely increased my upcr so and it also made it difficult because um we know that things like stress you know in hospital can affect you know your proteinuria transiently so how am i supposed to get a sample by cysto in the clinic and not have the animal be stressed so one of the things that i found in in researching about this subject is that studies later found that upcr results were similar if the urine was collected by free catch um, versus cystocentesis. So it really didn't seem to matter. Uh, and that hematuria and pyuria, yes, they could increase your UPCR, but they, they had to be pretty increased to do so. Okay. So for example, uh, red blood cell count of greater than 250 per high power fa- per high power field is what this study found was needed to actually start to falsely increase your UPCR. Okay. So it's to try and say, so say you've got a little bit of red blood cells or white blood cells in your urine, I wouldn't be worried that oh, I can't use the sample now or that this elevated UPCR can't be trusted. The, the, the studies also found that urine protein levels can vary throughout the day. So it's best to average your UPCR over two to three urine samples collected on different days. So that so in this way, I would recommend to evaluate a UPCR by having the owner actually collect urine samples at home. Mm-hmm. So we take away the component of them being stressed. Also, it's you know, easy for you. You don't you don't have to do it. Um, and so they collect the urine sample once a day for two to three days, and and the owner can just store the samples in the fridge. Okay. And I have them um, collect the last urine sample on the same day of their appointment. Then you, what you're going to do is when you have your urine containers, you're going to take kind of a, an approximate equal volume of urine from each container and you're going to pool them into one jar and that's the jar you're going to submit for UPCR. So it's like you're taking an average of the urine protein over several days. And that was that study recommended as the best way to evaluate your UPCR. The other thing that I always will run is I will take a sample of the the freshest urine from that day and run a urinalysis concurrently. And this is very important to do when you're running a UPCR because you do want to assess how active the urine, urine sediment is, especially to really rule out the presence of like an active UTI with a lot of bacteria because that can affect your, you know, falsely increase your UPCR. Um, and I've seen sometimes, you know, with referring veterinarians through the medicine service you know they're giving us this upcr and they'll say it's very increased but there's no urinalysis that goes along with it um and you know we're all ready to start treatment and then we find out you know especially if these patients are on immune suppressants they actually have a uti but they're not showing signs but you would have been kind of chasing this proteinuria and trying to control it when actually the underlying cause of it is an infection so i think it's it's even just to do a quick urine in house i know you know it can be expensive to send out both but we always at ovc recommend doing a upcr and and a paired urinalysis at the same time. Okay, yep, that sounds really good. And then sometimes I have owners wanting to freeze the pair, freeze the collected sample, but I think that that can affect at least the urinalysis results. Do you, you don't have them freeze them, do you? You have them refrigerated or does it matter? Um, for 
for using the urine that you're going to use for a UPCR, I, I wouldn't say it really no. matters to put it in the freezer in the fridge, but certainly that urine that you're collecting for the same day to run the urinalysis, I wouldn't freeze yeah. it. Can you start to get some weird casts and stuff in there? Yeah. But usually I just tell owners they can they can put it in the fridge. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, and it's not that much more expensive to add on a urinalysis if you're doing the UPCR anyway, I find. It, yeah. it is more, but it's not the same as both tests separately. Exactly. And I think it's just better to, you know, set the owner's expectations that that's something that you're going to want to do. And, and you'd have the, you know, reasoning to back it up if they questioned it. I think it's harder if, you know, you're just running a UPCR and then try to add on the urinalysis yeah. later. Sometimes they're a bit questioning. So I think it's just better to just say right up front, we, we test both. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds good to me. So, okay, so let's say we've arrived at the point where we have a dog, where we've done the, the workup to um, definitely conclude that we do have a patient with proteinuria. So what diagnostic workup would you recommend next? Yes, also also a good question. And, big question. Uh, yes, a bit, once again, a big question, <laughs> yeah. but I, I wanted to try to simplify it a little bit more. Um, so I kind of think of them as two groups. So you've got kind of, I guess, your standard workup that you should do for every patient with, with proteinuria. So that includes CBC and biochemistry. So you're especially wanting to look at, you know, what their kidney values are, their, their um, albumin levels are, things like that. And then as we talked about with kind of that association between proteinuria and hypertension, um, doing a blood pressure as well. I I think that's really important because one of the issues with controlling your proteinuria later is also um, controlling for any hypertension. So I think you want to know right away if that's an issue. One of the other things is if you're suspicious for hypertension, but you're kind of not sure, maybe the animal is not, you know, being very cooperative in in the room with their blood pressure cuff, um, you can actually do a fundic exam as well and look for signs of hypertension, like retinal hemorrhages and things like that. So to kind of make you more confident whether they're hypertensive or not. The other thing is you've probably done this already if you're diagnosing, you know, um, them with proteinuria, but making sure you are doing a urinalysis and even in some cases a urine culture if you're suspicious of infection. And then I would say some baseline infectious disease testing. So for Ontario dogs with no travel history, I would still de- say that 40X is like a baseline that that these guys should be having for just sure. because we know there is that association there. And even sometimes depending on their vaccination history or, you know, even kind of lifestyle Sometimes we'll even consider uh, leptospira MAT, so kind of looking for, you know, maybe previous exposure to leptospirosis as a possible trigger for proteinuria. So that's kind of the, the standard. Okay. And then for patients that have a higher degree of proteinuria, so we're talking about these UPCRs, even maybe greater than four, these dogs are more sick, maybe more progressive azotemia and hypoalbuminemia, then we're going to push for a more extensive um, uh, analysis. It's not wrong to do this even in the standard cases, but this is when I'd really say you want to do a more investigation. So things like chest x-rays, abdominal ultrasound, um, investigating for other causes of low albumin, like maybe liver disease or things like that. Certainly if they have a, a travel history doing, you know, diagnostic testing for things like leishmaniasis or other weird diseases. And then another one even to consider, especially in significant disease, is a renal biopsy. Okay, so when do you recommend a renal biopsy? Yes, you know, it's always something that 
it's, it's kind of in the back of our minds, yeah. I, I would say, uh, you know, when we're in internal medicine is when should I be recommending a renal biopsy? I will say at OVC, you know, we aren't just doing renal biopsies uh, every week, you know, no. on every patient with proteinuria. Um, because, as you know, you know, renal biopsies uh, are not without their risk. You know what I mean? No. We can have risks of, you know, damage to the kidney. Um, we do them under general anesthesia, risk of bleeding, things like that. But some of the indications when you would consider recommending a renal biopsy is if you have a patient that has that marked proteinuria, so, so a more severe proteinuria, so once again, a UPCR like greater than four, and particularly if they aren't responding to your standard therapy. So it's it's fair sometimes, and we'll go over the standard therapy in a minute, but uh, if, if you tried your standard therapy and it's not working, renal biopsy may help you, you know, decide where else you're going to go. Okay. Um, if the patient is getting rapidly worse, once again, like they're, you know, getting quite ill, has that low albumin, you've maybe started some of your standard therapy, but you're a bit worried about too much time going by, you know, pushing for the renal biopsy. Um, and I would say if you're considering using an immune suppressant as part of your therapy, because as we said before, sometimes we can have an immune mediated cause, but it's hard to know, you know, or if you want to feel more confident, do I want to use immune suppressants um, or not? Now, there are some contraindications, though, of, of when you would not want to do a renal biopsy, okay. I guess. So these would be if you uh, have a patient that has stage four, like our stage four kidney disease, because at that point, you know, kind of regardless, I guess, of the underlying cause of the proteinuria, that, that disease is, is pretty advanced and the risks of kind of putting them under to sample the kidney, they're going to have a harder time recovering. And also your sample is probably going to be mostly Fibrotic, so yeah. it, it wouldn't really be um, diagnostic. So I think at that in that stages, it's probably the benefits aren't worth the risks for those patients. Um, also, if you pay, have a patient that has a high suspicion of hydronephrosis, so like an obstruction maybe of the kidney or pyelonephritis kidney infection, or as well if they're a breed that's you know predisposed to amyloidosis, like the Sharpay or something, you you probably don't want to go ahead and do kind of a, a renal biopsy on those guys. Uh, now, just to go over a little bit, you know, if you did want to perform a renal biopsy, you know, you want to obtain a sample of cortical tissue. And, and at OVC, we use an ultrasound guided true cut biopsy to do mm -hmm. it. So it's not, you know, surgical. We do it with a, a biopsy, but we do want to have the patient under anesthesia to do it because it's a painful procedure. Yes. You want them to be very, uh, very still. And we want to send these samples to be assessed by a specialist in veterinary nephropathology. So you don't just put your sample in a formalin jar and, you know, send it to your local lab. We actually uh, at OVC send our renal biopsy samples to the International Renal Pathology Service at Texas A&M. So I guess another thing for the general practitioners out there or students is not necessarily like running a quick, uh, getting a quick renal biopsy is, is easy to do. I think if that's something that, right before lunch, yeah. yes, <laughs> that the owners would consider doing. Um, and I think it's important to at least have mentioned, you know, renal biopsy at some component in, in talking to uh, your client about proteinuria, even if they decide not to go ahead, at least, you know, that it was mentioned that if they do want to go ahead, I, I, you know, not that I'm trying to do a plug for, uh, you know, OVC or, or referring, but I think it probably is something you, you should consider referring to do. That would be a referral procedure, in my opinion, <laughs> having never performed a renal biopsy. Yes. You can do them for me. Thank yes. you very much. <laughs> yeah. No, there are just too many complications for me, potentially. Yeah. And I, I have seen some of those uh, having worked in ICU a little bit. So I, I do think that that's a referral procedure for me. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very fair. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So uh, renal biopsies aside, what are the general treatment recommendations for a case of proteinuria? 
For sure. So, um, so when we say now we've you know diagnosed our uh, patient with proteinuria and we've kind of ruled out the obvious underlying causes, and you know we may not know exactly what the reason is, but we want to start kind of generalized therapy. That's very fair. So there's three main components I look at. The first one is agents that inhibit RAS, which is our renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. And those are going to be things like ACE inhibitors, which are benazepril, or angiotensin receptor blockers, which are telmisertan. The other things we look at are antithrombotics. Um, members, we were saying that proteinuria um, and hypercoagulability go together. And we often use uh, an antiplatelet drug called clopidogrel at OVC. And then the last thing is our omega-3s um, and then plus minus kind of diet changes. Uh, so when we look at our RAS inhibitors that are typically recommended for treatment of proteinuria, when you look at the consensus guidelines, they recommended using benazepril mm-hmm. as your first-line drug. But now telmisertan is actually considered first-line therapy. And what we use, you know, we go to first when we're, when we're treating proteinuria at OVC. So tamisertan is more specific than benazepril because tamisertan acts on angiotensin receptor 1, and there's angiotensin receptor 1 and 2, and tamisertan just acts on the receptor 1 because 2 has some beneficial effects, whereas benazepril will block both of them. So that's, it's more, it acts more specifically. Okay. Telmisertan has also been found to have superior ability to reduce proteinuria in comparison to ACE inhibitors in studies. So that's why it's kind of stepped up the list as our our first line RAS inhibitor to use to treat proteinuria in dogs and cats. Um, It is important to remember that RAS inhibitors also have some antihypertensive effects. So I, I, you know, would not, um, I guess I would warn against starting, you know, a RAS inhibitor. And then also, you know, if your animal has hypertension, starting something like amlodipine at the same time, I'd really say maybe best to start one drug and then kind of recheck your blood pressure later, um, just because you don't want them to get hypotensive. Uh, for omega-3s, we want, you know, there are some guidelines you can you can look up online, but basically you want to have like a low um, six and a high like omega-3 ratio, so approximately five to one ratio. And for the diet, I'm, I'm usually not too um, kind of, I guess, like uh, eager to say, okay, you have to go right to a renal diet if the okay. patient is an azotemic, but they do find that a, a diet that's moderate in protein, so you don't, you don't want a high protein diet because that's more protein can, that can be lost in the urine and kind of has a lower salt content is what you want. So as long as your diet is moderate in protein, kind of reduce salt, I, I don't say they have to change to a renal diet. And then for additional treatments, then kind of we say, well, it depends on if they're like, if you find they are seropositive for infectious disease, or if you've confirmed immunity disease, you know, those are, those are additional treatments you can do. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. I like to have sort of a general starting point and thanks for clarifying that. Okay. So you were talking about RAS inhibitors. Can you tell me a little bit more about how they work? Sure. I I think this is a really important thing to know when starting a RAS inhibitor is how it actually works to reduce proteinuria. Because I I think I, maybe as a veterinary student and even as a veterinarian, kind of had this idea like, oh my gosh, yeah, I just give it and and the proteinuria decreases and just win-win, you know? Pretty much magical. It's pretty, exactly. Like why, you know, the more the better. But, um, you know, kind of learning more about how it works does tell you kind of where some situations might be better to use it or not and also some of the risks you can have so I I think to know kind of how the RAS inhibitors work it's important to know actually what RAS that system itself does 
So when you have a decrease in your blood volume in your body, the kidney is going to detect this because it wants to make sure it has the same amount of blood flowing to the kidney at all times. And when your kidney sees, okay, your blood volume is decreasing, I'm not getting as much blood to, you know, flowing to the glomerulus, renin will be released. So renin is a part of that RAS system and renin converts angiotensin to angiotensin 1 and then you get um, angiotensin 2 um, created by kind of that angiotensin converting enzyme. So angiotensin 2 is the big player here and that causes constriction of your efferent arterial, which is the blood vessel kind of coming out of your glomerulus, kind of taking blood away. And when you constrict that blood vessel, it increases the amount of, I guess we say, hydrostatic pressure or pressure within the glomerulus. So when there's more pressure in the glomerulus, there's more ability to push that blood through that filter and then it has a better filtering ability. So this is actually your, when we say your glomerular filtration there, that's your GFR. So it's able to maintain your GFR um, even if you have a lower blood pressure. So actually angiotensin 2 is trying to help you, you know, in, in in those situations maintain your GFR. So RAS inhibitors act by blocking those vasoconstricting effects of angiotensin 2. So it will actually cause vasodilation of that efferent arterial. And this decreases the amount of pressure within the glomerulus. So it has less filtering ability. So actually your GFR is lowered. But if there's less filtering ability, it means there's less ability for that, you know, that albumin to be pushed through the filter into the urine. So it's almost like everything's just kind of slowed down, less albumin being pushed out and more albumin can stay in the bloodstream. Um, So this is good because you're having less proteinuria, but as you can imagine, if you're lowering your GFR, it also can lower that filtration of other components in your blood like chorea and, and, you know, creatinine and urea, which you want to be filtered through. Right. So this is why one of the main risks of using a RAS inhibiting drug is you can get acute kidney injury because if you give your drug but then you give maybe too much of it and your GFR decreases too much then you will actually you can actually develop an acute kidney injury so yes your proteinuria will look better um, (laughs) but also you will become you know azotemic so this is another reason why it's recommended to recheck your kidney values after starting you know any of these RAS inhibitors because you want to ensure you know in that kind of balance of yes you're decreasing your proteinuria but not so much that you're now causing too much kind of stress on your kidney decreasing your GFR too much. Another important point is that RAS, you know, does have an important function in the body. Like, obviously, it wasn't created just to cause proteinuria. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. helping, you know, to protect your kidney in times of hypovolemia or low blood volume. So if you block the function of RAS, you know, like you're the owner's giving it to their pet every day. If that patient becomes like dehydrated, uh, maybe they're not eating, they, you know, are vomiting or diarrhea, you know, and they become dehydrated, they are more at risk of developing an AKI because you've taken away that um, kind of protective component of the RAS system. So this is why I clearly communicate to any owner when they're going to start their pet on a RAS inhibitor is this is a drug to give when your patient is, you know, when your animal is feeling well, you know, so giving it every day, they're doing well, that's great. But if your pet stops eating, you know, they're not, they're not feeling well, having vomiting and diarrhea, things like that, you can actually, you know, cause harm if you continue to give the drug in that setting. So it's safe to just stop, you know, if you need to. Um, and, you know, if they're not sure, better to just be on the safe side and just stop that drug and it can always be restarted, you know, once the patient's feeling better. Um, But I think that's an important thing to kind of relay to owners as well when prescribing the drug. 
Okay, for sure. That's that's really important. Thank you for going over that. Yeah. And then when you recheck your blood values, do you expect a slight increase in your urea and creatinine after you start it? And how much of an increase is acceptable, if any? Exactly. I, I think it would be, you know, hard to say uh, we would expect no change. You yeah. obviously it'd be amazing if our proteinuria, you know, was, imp- was improved and our and our, um, our kidney values just stayed the same. Um, on kind of in the consensus guidelines, they say you can expect kind of about a, I guess up to a 30% increase in your creatinine and urea from your baseline so it's important to get a baseline as well before you start tra- treatment but if you have greater than a 30% increase then they really say okay you should be considering now decreasing your dose by you know 25 or even 50% um, because you don't want to in the process of controlling that proteinuria you know give give the animal an AKI. Yeah no that would be less than ideal. Yeah. Perfect okay okay that sounds good so we just double check and make sure it's not more than a 30% increase thank yeah. you. Okay. And then tell me more about starting antithrombotics. Like does the does the degree of hypoalbuminemia or proteinuria affect when you would want to start it? You know, surprisingly, it does not actually. Yeah, yeah. The degree that, you know, either the degree of hypoalbuminemia or proteinuria wouldn't necessarily affect my decision to start antithrombotics. Now, I remember being in practice, you know, several years ago, and I had a patient that I diagnosed as proteinuria, and I was kind of looking up some things, and they talked about, you know, starting antithrombotics, and I said, you know, I'd never started them before. So I actually called like one of the on those like internist helplines, and I remember asking, you know, should I start an antithrombotic? And she said, no, based on research available at that time, you'd only started antithrombotics if patients had an albumin less than 20. Because the idea was if it's less than albumin's less than 20, then your antithrombin would be low enough that you're at risk of getting blood clots. And that's when you start. So I said, oh, okay, perfect. Don't, you know, because my patient's albumin was like 24. So I didn't need to. Now we have determined that patients with proteinuria are suspected to be hypocoagulable, but it doesn't seem to matter if they're like really hypoalbuminemic or really proteinuric or not. It doesn't correlate with their risk of developing thrombosis in studies. Mm. So in the recess actually consensus guidelines of antithrombotic use in veterinary patients, prophylactic antithrombotics are recommended in patients with proteinuria. So it's actually part of the consensus guidelines just because said, you know, kind of saying, oh, I'll only save it for my most severe patients it didn't seem in studies that it, it mattered if they were severe or not so I would really say unless your patient has a reason why it wouldn't be safe to give them anticoagulants like maybe they have you know lower platelets or they have a GI ulcer or something like that I think you really should be you know thinking of using them or at least discussing them with the owner because I think the worry is you know that they're a pretty safe drug but if you don't give them you know the consequences of having a blood clot can sometimes be very you know very severe yeah yeah for sure so it's much better to be proactive than attempt to be reactive there which doesn't work very well okay okay that's really good to know and then so you've mentioned immune suppressants um, and when would you consider treating with immune suppressants and if so then then which ones would you recommend yes Yes, great question as well. So I think if you have tried, you know, your standard therapy for proteinuria, as we discussed, so you started your RAS inhibitors, you know, your antithrombotics, your omega-3s, your diet, and you're kind of escalating the dose, but you're still having trouble getting that proteinuria under control. And 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 kind of our, our goal when we're treating proteinuria is saying we're getting that UPCR less than 0.5 would be ideal or, or 0.4 in a, cl- in a cat 
or decreasing from greater than 50% from your baseline. So maybe if you started at four, you're getting that UPCR two or less, you know what I mean? So say you're treating and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, my proteinuria is not really budging or it's getting worse. You know what I mean? The patient is responding. I'm having progressive renal disease. Um, Now you're saying, okay, I, I think that I need to start thinking, is there something different that I need, I need to be doing right. And now you can start to consider, should I be using immune suppressants or not? I guess one of the big kind of factors of when I'm going to use immune suppressants can also tie into whether I've done a renal biopsy or not, right? Because obviously if we do a renal biopsy and we see signs of immune mediated disease, you know, we're going to be feeling pretty comfortable. Like, you know, we see that there, they're going to benefit from having immune suppressants. So, so go, you know, go ahead and start it. But uh, it really isn't that often that we actually have a renal biopsy. So you often find yourself in a position where the patient, you know, maybe either it's not safe to do a renal biopsy or the owner isn't interested in doing it or can't afford it. So you're kind of treating and then saying, okay, I think that they might have it. And I think that that's very fair to do. If you've tried these other treatments, they're not working. Um, As long as you really communicate to the client, we're, you know, this is something we can try. You know, we're, we're struggling with what we're doing now. We can try using immune suppressants, but without that kind of renal biopsy diagnosis, there is that potential risk. The proteinuria could worsen, especially if there's something like an infectious disease as the underlying cause that that maybe we didn't determine. Um, Even sometimes steroids themselves can sometimes worsen proteinuria. So I guess it's always like kind of, you want to at least, you know, say to the owner, we can try this, you know, knowing that I don't know for sure if it will help. Um, You know, we can really watch like if if they're not responding to it well, it seems like the disease is getting worse after starting. Um, The immune suppressants, we can always take it away. But it's all, it's kind of, you know, when we know that, like in that study, 50%, you know, of dogs had an immune mediated cause, maybe we're actually under treating, you know what I mean? Yes. Some of these dogs with um, proteinuria that actually have immune mediated disease, but we just don't know because we didn't do the, the renal biopsy. So if you do want to go ahead with starting um, immune suppression, mycophenolate is actually the recommended first line immune suppressant for dogs with immune mediated proteinuria. So this isn't immune an immune suppressant that I think a lot of people are familiar with. We use it sometimes as a second or third line drug in treating other immune mediated diseases. But mycophenolate is actually more commonly used in humans with proteinuria um, and is it's kind of in their consensus guidelines as your, your drug to start with. Now, one of the kind of downsides of mycophenolate, it can cause diarrhea. So I was say maybe start on a lower dose at first, see how the dog responds. And you may not see a result right away. Like it's not as you know rapid acting. So sometimes, especially if you have a patient that's very ill, you know, the disease is rapidly progressing, you can pair that with steroids. So I would okay. say steroids and mycophenolate concurrently when the proteinuria is severe and you need a rapid onset of action. But in the consensus guidelines, they do say, you know, steroids themselves could potentially you know, worsen protein area. And so it's not recommended as a first line on its own. And if you are going to use it, as soon as you're kind of seeing that positive effect, the patient is more stable, try to taper down the steroids to the minimal dose or, or stop it as soon as possible. Um, so those are kind of the same thing, what we do at OVC. The one thing that's interesting is we use um, cyclosporin at OVC for a lot of other immune mediated conditions, but they actually found cyclosporin did not help with protein area, PLN. Oh, okay. So I wouldn't, you know, be thinking, oh, what about trying cyclosporin? Actually, no, that's one of the one of the few times I wouldn't recommend, you know, cyclosporin for an immune mediated condition. 
Okay, really interesting. Yeah, uh, mycophenolate certainly isn't a drug that's in common practice in primary care. As far as I know, I've used it in some vasculitis cases, that type of thing. But it is not something that just I have on my pharmacy shelf ready to prescribe to everyone. So yes, for yeah, sure. Good to know. Good to know. Okay, okay. Wow, we have gone through so much information. It's amazing. <laughs> so I love that you kind of went over the general sort of review of what proteinuria is, um, the things to think about when you're initially working up a proteinuria case. Um, and then the general treatments to try, and then maybe some more advanced treatments and also renal biopsies and why to refer those. So thank you very much. That's so great. Thank you so much for going over like such a complex topic. And I think we all now have a little bit of a better understanding of how to get a grasp on these cases and and the importance of doing so, you know, because we really don't want to miss these or leave them undiagnosed and untreated. Yeah. And and I think one of the big takeaways for me is that, you know, when I would think of a patient that has proteinuria, like when I was in a vet student, you know, a vet student, I pictured an animal that was very ill, you know, had these classic hypoalbuminemia, maybe had ascites, high kidney values. Like I was like, oh, there's no way, you know, I'm going to miss it. Yeah. But actually a lot of the cases of proteinuria that I ended up diagnosing, the patient, it was found incidentally, you know yeah. what I mean? The patient seemed clinically well. Actually, the biochemistry looked normal, um, but it it was only if you do a urinalysis and actually look for it, well, you find it. And I think the idea is if you can try to implement therapy before it's gotten to such a severe state, maybe you can help, you know, this animal's quality, longevity of life. So I think unless you do a urinalysis, you're not going to know sometimes if they have proteinuria. So just that push to kind of have, you know, a urinalysis as part of even your your screening um, test, you know, when you do your blood work, you, you can have uh, beneficial, you know, effects too. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of the geriatric profiles as well, if you're sending off a geriatric profile with a urinalysis, with a lot of the the grouped sort of um, tests, like the general uh, feline or canine geriatric profile, you can often add on a UPCR for very little extra money to the client if you're doing that blood work and urinalysis anyway. So often we do that routinely here just to see what the UPCR is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never know. Unless you, never you look. Know, yeah. Unless you look. That's very, very true. Okay. I also want to say thank you to our sponsors, OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust generously sponsors research that contributes to the diagnosis and treatment and the understanding of diseases of pets. Thank you so much, Pet Trust. And we can learn more about them at www.pettrust.ca. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much for being here, Erin. No problem. And uh, if anybody has ideas for future podcasts, please message us at Vet Sessions or email us at vetsessions at hotmail.com. Take care. Have a great day.